$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. You may remember back in December, U.S. Steel agreed to be bought out by Japanese uh, steelmaker Nippon Steel. They are Japan's largest steelmaker for $14.1 billion. And you had members of the Pennsylvania congressional delegation saying, no, we should be blocking this. Uh, this is a bad idea. People like me saying this is a terrible idea. Uh, understand, U.S. Steel wants the largest company basically on the planet uh, now, they've been in decline for years, and now you have this uh, formerly iconic 122-year-old company, uh, one of the nation's first major conglomerates, a symbol of American might and productivity, product power uh, being sold off to the highest foreign bidder. And and, and I would argue for not, not very much. On January 3rd, you had 53 members of Congress who sent a letter to the Biden administration asking for a comprehensive review in the hopes of blocking the sale. And for me, the the interesting part of all of this, and we'll see how politically this pans out, but the arguments uh, for allowing the sale have been interesting to watch because you've got, on one side, you've got, you know, anyone who's against it, you know, this is just xenophobia because the Japanese are our friends. And you go, yeah, now. Clearly, you know, there are friends, and that's that's great. Now, uh, on the other side, you have some uh, who have said, uh, it's just business. You know, capitalism kills off the weak, and, you know, we consumers will be so much better off uh, because, you know, these this U.S. Steel, they, they, they didn't invest in their business. They ran their business poorly, and now they're ripe for the picking. And, and look, you know, first, you know, the first argument, nonsense, I'm not buying it at all. But the second got me thinking, you know, is this the sign of an America in decline? Is this the sign of, you know, 50, 70 years of American excess? I mean, I remember, you know, the heyday, well, the end of the heyday of American steel, the jobs, really, the, the standard of living that came out of those jobs. And I think back to, uh, you know, someone who I knew very well, who uh, her father was a supervisor at Bethlehem Steel. Uh, the standard of living that they had and, and the stories that he told of, you know, Bethlehem Steel in its heyday employed like 100,000 people at good, solid family sustaining wages with health care, with retirement security, with vacations and all kinds of stuff. A wonderful standard of living opportunity for children to go on to college like this person was able to do. And that all got 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 eviscerated. And to hear to hear this this guy, this retiree tell the story is, you know, the management back then, and this is you know 60s, 70s, made horrible decisions, bad policy, uh, our, our, our horrible trade policies, you know, supply side voodoo Reaganomics, neoliberal trade policies, all bad. But you know, investing in you know buying hotels and 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 investing in everything but steel making capacity, you know, eventually cost them. And I remember this guy; he was the head of the coke plant at the time. Uh, their job was to you know to, to to pour the steel. And he said, "Look, they were they were bringing the Japanese 
engineers through to show them how they made steel. You know, this is back in the 70s. And then, you know, after World War II, we're you know, outfitting them with the best, the best capacity. Uh, you know, part of the Marshall Plan was to rebuild, you know, Japan and Europe and, and these places that are now, well, buying us. And, and I go back to this and I go, you know, this is the result of, of you know, bad, bad policy by these companies, terrible, uh, you know, terrible board leadership, terrible CEO leadership. But also, and I would argue more importantly, bad political policy, bad tax policy that would go, yeah, go ahead and take those profits. Don't bother plowing them back into your business. Yeah, pay your CEOs more, you know, you know buy hotels, buy whatever. But don't worry about your core business. Um, you know, to me, steel's special. We need steel. Well, we need it <laughs> when we need it. Or well, actually, we don't need it until we need it. And I remember my grandfather telling me, look, the reason we won World War II is we were able to ramp up production. We had steel mills. We had factories. We don't have those buildings anymore. We had the buildings. And look, understand, steel production is crucial for a nation. So for me, when I look at a foreign company taking over our steel production and the possibility of them either taking it or dumping in and causing other competitors to go out of business, that's a major problem. Understand, steel is a big deal uh, you know, for our infrastructure to start with. It's a fundamental building material for our roads, our bridges, our, our railways, buildings, whatever you need. It's the backbone of industrial development for factories and warehouses and, and manufacturing. It's all of that stuff. You know, if let's say something bad were to happen and we did need to ramp up production, if you don't have the factories, you don't have the steel to build, the, you got problems. Also, it's key to economic development. It means jobs. It means innovation. It means growth. In industries like construction, autom automotive, manufacturing, if you're not making steel, if you don't have the capacity to make steel, all of the other stuff, kind of difficult. Uh, national security, anybody thought of that? You know, our, our, our warships, our planes, our guns, you know, all of the things that we need for national defense and just the, the arsenal of democracy. The fact that you have the capacity to ramp up and build without relying on another country. The fact that we can, we can make technological advancements, innovate. We can ramp up environmental efficiencies. There's so much we can do if we invest in manufacturing and steel production. But yet here... You've got some who are like, no, no, we're, we're ready to give it up to the Japanese because they're already doing it. And that's the most troubling article argument of all. Uh, the reason that Nippon is the right person instead of Cleveland Cliffs, who had made an offer, is, well, they're so much more advanced. I don't know if that's the right argument. I think it's a bad idea, and I, I'm interested to see how the Biden administration is going to move on this. Uh, but when we come back... Pennsylvania Congressman Chris Deluzio is going to be here to share some thoughts on why uh, he opposes the idea and what he thinks possibly could come out of this. Quick break. Right back with Representative Deluzio. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So as we've been talking about, uh, on January 3rd, uh, a number of congressional representatives sent a letter to the president 
uh, saying, hey, you, you need to look at this acquisition of U.S. Steel by a foreign competitor. In fact, 53 congressional representatives sent this letter uh, led by the Congressional Labor Caucus saying, you know what, maybe maybe something we should be taking a look at. In fact, one of the people who's been ahead of this, uh, Pennsylvania Representative Chris Deluzio, who back in December, along with Bob Casey and John Fetterman, uh, sent a letter to Janet Yellen saying, hey, um, maybe, maybe look at this. Maybe maybe we should be blocking this. Uh, that's why I've asked the representative to come uh, keep us up to date and maybe find out what's going on. Chris, thanks for taking time for us. Yeah, Rick, thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking about what's happening, uh, not just in Western PA, but all over the country with steel. This is a big deal uh, because I think, you know, foreign ownership of productive capacity, which has been going on for decades, we've lost our, our manufacturing prowess. We used to be the nation, the world's producer, and now we're, we're no longer that. In fact, there's a bridge in Trenton, New Jersey, that says Trenton makes the world takes. We're no longer that country because we've sold off our productive capacity. We didn't lose it. We sold it off. And this is another one of those moments where I think we better be very careful, especially when you're talking about steel. So where are we in this moment now that you guys have sent this letter to the administration? How have they responded? Well, let me just start with, we should be the country and can be the country that makes the things that we rely on here at home and that we can export to the world. You know, I talk about my region is a place where people made the steel to build America. We still make steel, okay? I think that's an important part of this and where we come from. So where are we is the good question. So you, you talked about the letters that my Labor Caucus colleagues and I sent, my senators and a bunch of others. Uh, the process here is for this committee called CFIUS, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. That's the avenue we're pushing uh, for the administration to scrutinize, the acquisition by Japan's Nippon Steel of U.S. Steel. And that committee has the power to look at the national security implications. And if they find that they're real, which I think they are, they have the power to block a transaction like this. And that's exactly what we and so many others who have signed on to these letters have asked the administration to do. How often does this happen? I mean, there are, there are a lot of instances throughout the years that I, I can recall uh, Chinese companies buying up American manufacturers. In fact, you know, some that you would argue had direct uh, inputs into our military, um, and those weren't blocked. What are the chances of this, which is a big deal, a $14.1 billion deal, what are the chances of, of this being blocked? I don't want to handicap this thing because I don't know exactly how this could play out, but what I will say is I think for way too long, talking decades, uh, this country has not taken seriously enough our own domestic manufacturing, our own industrial base, our defense industrial base. You talk about consolidation in industries. Well, look at defense. I and mean, we've seen the, the prime contractors there go down 90% since the 90s. You've got oftentimes parts and components and weapon systems with just a couple or a few uh, companies submitting bids. That's a problem for our national security as it is to see more and more manufacturing capacity go overseas or to foreign ownership. And that takes us right back to steel, which is something we rely on for defense. We need it for our infrastructure and so much else. And to see foreign control, that's an obvious foreign or obvious national security concern for me, even if it's a friendly country like Japan. You know, patriotism and commitment to this country has to mean something. And certainly when we're talking about something as important as steel that we rely on for our defense and so much else. What do you say to the first the first response uh, to those who were in favor of this? You know, in fact, you know, I saw, well, it's all xenophobia. Any if you're against this, it's xenophobia. So uh, a response to that. Look, let's start with the buyer here, Nippon Steel. This is a company who's been found to engage in illegal trade practices around steel, dumping steel into this country uh, against our trade laws. And I think. Most Americans understand that our defense industrial base and many other sectors of our economy require us to make some things here at home. And steel is central to building so much. Certainly there's a defense piece of that, our infrastructure, you name it. And, and you think about a company like U.S. Steel. They've benefited tremendously from the Inflation Reduction Act. They've benefited tremendously from the infrastructure law and its spending. They've benefited from the tariffs from President Biden and President Trump. This country has given a lot, and not just this country, a lot of the people who I represent who toiled for generations, working hard, fighting for rights on the job in a union. The steel workers are giving a lot to US Steel, giving a lot to this country, and something has to matter more than just chasing the absolute 
maximum profit. Shareholders matter, they aren't the only thing. Workers matter, communities matter, and this country matters. Uh, I think that we've just seen this crazy shareholder profit maximization thing take over. And you've even got the business roundtable now, hardly some progressive group saying, hey, stakeholders other than shareholders also got skin in the game and also matter in all this. Yeah, but Chris, that was pre-pandemic. That was that, that was so ancient ago. Uh, that was twenty. That was so 2019, uh, back when they claimed they learned their lesson. They're, they, I don't buy that anymore. They they showed us yeah. their true colors. But but here's the thing. Um, one of the arguments that that's being made to allow this to go forward, and this is the most troubling part of this for me, is that Nippon is so much more advanced. Their technology is better. They make better steel. It's going to raise the production levels. It's going to give the United States better steel. We're going to get cheaper steel. It's going to be all of the arguments that the privatizers have made for everything that we sell off, that we're going to get it better, faster, cheaper, all of that, those sales tactics. Um, but the scary part is, is they're not entirely wrong that we have fallen behind in a lot of technology in these areas and in our productive capacities because we haven't had an industrial policy, and I would argue, until this administration. And, and that has been one of, I think, the sea changes to see an administration and a Congress, the last Congress, embrace industrial policy. People used to be afraid of that. Well, you know what? We need to make stuff and support our industries to compete globally. I think that's a basic idea that most American people agree with me about and frankly agree with President Biden about, you know, you saw it with the Inflation Reduction Act, Chips and Science Act, and of course, you know, the infrastructure law on its own. Uh, we're doing some of this and we should. And it also goes to global competition. You know, it's one thing to say we can compete fairly with whatever country or company there is. It's another to expect uh, us to say, hey, we have fair trade when the other side of that trading bargain is a country that dumps, that subsidizes, that exploits their workers, that has no environmental rules. That's not fair trade, and that's often what, for decades, folks in Washington outsourced our, our manufacturing prowess to letting companies chase the cheapest labor and the weakest environmental rules they could. I've been saying for virtually every day of doing this program for the last almost 19 years that I'm a firm believer in domestic production for domestic consumption. We make what we need. We trade for the things that we cannot make. And I don't believe there's anything that we can't make. Uh, and, and going forward in that ideology and that belief structure, and I think the administration with their their thought process of reshoring some manufacturing and the way that we're about to start rebuilding our infrastructure, that could create millions of good-paying union jobs, uh, could have a massive reverberation across our economy and recreate that prosperous working class that our grandparents' generation had. For me, that's moving the economy in a in a good direction, in the right direction. And, and redirecting our economy uh, away from what got us into the mess that we've been struggling under for the last 30, 40 years. And I know there's some growing pains that are going to happen, but I think it's putting us in the right direction. So I think that we need to, we need to maintain our, our domestic capacity and, and not keep selling off our soul bit by bit. Yeah, and Rick, look, we can go look at what happened when in the decades and years that followed the decisions uh, to do what you just described, right? To offshore all these jobs, to crush good, solid manufacturing union jobs, to let Wall Street push companies to chase the cheapest labor and weakest environmental rules. What happened? You gutted tons of communities, many of whom are many of which are in places like Western Pennsylvania. Uh, folks saw rising inequality, less power and say on the job, slower growth, weaker purchasing power. It didn't work. Well, it worked if the idea was to maximize profits and make the people who own these companies increasingly richer. It did not strengthen our economy. It made growth, growth worse, and it hurt workers and communities. Yeah. By it the worked. way, the workers and the communities who sacrificed a lot to build this country. Uh, so we're turning the ship around, and we should, and I'm going to keep pushing any administration to do exactly that. It's the right thing. No, this is where, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter of the Biden administration because I do think that they are turning the ship. Uh, that they are moving us away from the neoliberal policies that got us into the the mess that we're in, and I would you know, and away from the supply side voodoo Reaganomic policies that got us where we are. 
Uh, and and you know, I say part of what we need to start doing is is you know stopping these uh, these 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 buying up of our of our capacity our productive capacities, and also using our antitrust laws and updating our antitrust laws to start breaking up some of the monopolies that we already have and not letting new ones. Uh, we need to be bringing competition back to our economy and and creating an environment where we can. Well, we produce our own stuff, and we we have a, a a company that works for Americans. Yeah, look, I think you're you're right to bring in the antitrust piece of this. Competition, I think, is a fundamentally American idea, right? We all know that small businesses get squeezed every day by whether it's Amazon or whoever else is a massive, massive monopolist and player. And that consolidation, whatever industry it is, you see it. You look. There is there's more power to set prices and rip people off and price gouge. And I'll give a, a nod to my senior senator, Bob Casey, who's been digging in on a lot of this, what he's calling greedflation and otherwise of where there is more power, where there's consolidation. These folks are passing on price increases to all of us because they can. Many of them brag about it on earnings calls with Wall Street, about their ability to pass on price increases beyond inflation or beyond the increases in the cost they're seeing. It is a policy choice, and it's one I disagree with. And I'm glad to see some interest all of a sudden in antitrust and you know, taking on these, these powerful companies to, frankly, get more competition in there. Yeah, it's something that I've been screaming for, oh, I don't know, for you know, all 18 years. Because you can't have the kind of outweighted power. Uh, the, the pendulum cannot swing too far to one side or the other. I don't want labor to have all the power. I don't want to have corporations have all the power. I want to find that sweet spot where we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. Well, and look, it's not just that it hurts consumers. It's not just that it hurts workers. It's not just that it hurts suppliers or, you know, competitors or small businesses. It's that it hurts all of them, right? When you have some firm or company that's got this kind of power, they hurt every single piece yep. of the economy they deal with. And so that competition is important and it really, you know, helps workers, consumers and, and everybody else who's involved. Last question on this that I've got for you, because, you know, they've, they've tried to minimize uh, the national security component of, of U.S. Steel being bought up by Nippon. Uh, you know, I've seen a number, about 3% of what U.S. Steel does is in the national security world. Um, are, are you concerned that, that that's the argument out there? Well, it's, it's not a big deal. It's only 3% of what they do. Um, are you concerned about that kind of an argument? You know, I think it misses the basic thing. Uh, go look at what domestic defense production was in, say, 1939 and compare it to 1943, right? We need to have the capacity to ramp up, God forbid, should we find ourselves in a big war. And seeing foreign ownership in a place where we will absolutely need to ramp up if, again, God forbid, we find ourselves in a big war, that's the problem. Yeah. And that's that's ignoring all the other implications of this sale. Uh, the point is you got to have control here at home if we're in a situation where we have to rapidly expand our factories and our production. No, you're spot on accurate there. Uh, and, and, you know, not worrying about uh, overseas, worrying about right here at home, obviously, January 6th, uh, just a couple of days ago. I want to get your thoughts on the, the third anniversary and more importantly, uh, the, the historical rewrite that's going on right in front of us, that it was you know kind of a patriotic day, that it was a day like any other, you know, you know, people defecating on the floor and urinating on desks and smashing windows and wiping blood all over busts and all that stuff. Uh, I, want, I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, last I checked, it's not patriotic to beat the crap out of cops uh, in your quest to disrupt the Congress from doing its duty and trying to overthrow the presidential election, which is essentially what these people were doing, egged on by Trump, who wanted to stay in office after losing. I, I can't believe that's a sentence I have to utter uh, about something that happened in this country that some of my fellow Americans took part in, but it is. It's what they did, and it is a real threat that continues to our freedom. And I... You know, look, I'm not naive. I know these threats exist, but I take great comfort knowing that the vast majority of people in this country from both parties, everywhere in between, I don't think they want our government to fail. I don't think they want democracy to fail. Now, that's not a foregone conclusion that it'll succeed, but I think a lot more people are committed to it than the other way. And that gives me some hope here. Yeah, I, I keep asking the question and, and I wish someone would ask, you know, the, the, the tough guys like Jim Jordan and Mark Wayne Mullen, uh, you know, the, the people who are, you know, are out there saying that it was just like any other day. Uh, if that were the case, why were they hiding? Why were they out amongst their people, you know, saying, hey, maybe don't, you know, do that on the floor. Maybe, maybe don't. 
Yeah, look, I mean, you talk to, I wasn't yet in the Congress, but I, you know, I've talked to plenty of colleagues who lived through it. Uh, there is no doubt in their minds what those folks were willing to do, what they did do. I mean, you, you can see the footage yourself. Some of these yeah. officers get just the absolute crap kicked out of them. Um, but people were willing to use violence and kill to accomplish their mission. And I think there are still folks committed to trying to overthrow this government. But again, I think there are a lot more of us who are willing to defend it. Chris, I appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, as always, good stuff. I hope you'll come back in and share some more. And especially as uh, this goes on down the road, uh, it's my hope that they block this and we find a, a U.S. suitor uh, to keep this a U.S. company and, uh, and move forward. But I appreciate your time. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Uh, anytime. Pennsylvania Representative Chris DeLuzio. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, again, it's going to be interesting to see what the Biden administration does because what they have said is they're the most pro worker, uh, pro union administration in history. And this is, this is, for me, one of those important moments. And as I've been saying, I think this administration is moving us in a direction that can be transformational. Uh, this idea of, and, and, and I would love to hear them articulate this more, the idea of domestic production from domestic consumption, uh, that we make what we use, especially something as important as steel, that we have a national conversation about what it is that we, we, we think is in the national interest. What productive capacity we need to make sure that we hold on to. And, and, and dearly, because, you know, again, coming out of the pandemic, I think we learned how fragile our supply chain is and just how one, one disruption could cause chaos and, and did cause chaos. Uh, we struggled to come out of this. And I think the Biden administration did a good job and getting us back on the right track. I think they're doing a great job of moving us toward a path of, of reshoring manufacturing. This, you know, understand, you know, while we're talking about investing in infrastructure, the roads and the bridges and the buildings and all of the, 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 the green uh, economy stuff that's going to be built, steel's gonna be at the heart of this. Nippon didn't buy this because they're like, oh, hey, you know, we just got a little money laying around. We think we're going to be, we're just going to do out of the goodness of our art. No, no. They saw, they saw dollar signs. They saw American dollar signs. They saw American investment dollars. Shouldn't we take that investment and invest in American companies, in American workers? It's my thought. Want to hear yours? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. If you're watching on free speech, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Uh, for our radio audience, quick break. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1860. That was a day of tragedy as the Pemberton Mill collapsed in Lawrence, Massachusetts. The collapse of the five-story textile mill was one of the worst workplace disasters in U.S. history. Most of the 800 workers in the mill were women and Irish immigrants. Some were teenagers. During that fateful afternoon, as they were working, they heard a strange rattling noise. Then, within seconds, the mill collapsed. 
Tons of machinery crashed through the collapsing floors, crushing workers. Many more were trapped. Rescuers attempted to free the trapped workers. But that night, as the rescue efforts continued, a fire broke out in the ruined plant. Many trapped workers were burned alive. Helplessly, the rescuers could only look on with horror. The exact number of dead is unknown, but estimates range between 88 and 145 workers killed that day, with another 150 suffering serious injuries. The large building was only seven years old when it collapsed. Poor construction was determined to be the cause of the disaster. In an effort to maximize profits, the mill had more heavy equipment inside than the building could support. The New York Times reported, the building was never considered to be as staunch as it ought to have been. It was built about seven years since and was then thought a sham. Indeed, before the machinery was put in, the walls spread to such a degree that some 22 tons of iron plates were put in to save it from falling by its own weight. After the disaster, the mill was rebuilt. Workers at the new mill claimed to see the ghosts of those who had died in the tragedy. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. In the serious business of politics, a little humor can be your best friend. I saw its impact 30 years ago in Austin when a group of young, irreverent democracy activists decided to try limiting corporations and lobbyists that were drowning our local elections in their special interest campaign cash. The upstart group gave their grassroots effort a name that was a bit whimsical, yet pointed. Austinites for a little less corruption. It caught on, even though the entire corporate, political, and media establishment united in furious opposition to the reform, 70% of voters rather joyously shouted, yes, now more than ever. We need to rally grassroots Americans in a high-spirited, openly rebellious campaign to save our people's historic democratic values. An autocratic coterie of plutocratic supremacists with unlimited corporate funding already dominates our elections, public policy agenda, and our highest courts. It's not a secret conspiracy. They're quite open about it. But forget the days of million-dollar corporate donations. The arsenal of the systemic corruptors has now been nuclearized. For example, wealth supremacist Charles Koch has just injected $5 billion in his 2024 political operation. It's hard to visualize how much anti-democratic firepower one gets by spending billions instead of mere millions. Think of the difference not in terms of dollars, but time. If you have a million seconds, that's 11 days. But a billion seconds, that's more than 31 years. This is Jim Hightower saying, we can have no progress in America, no democracy, without getting corporate money out of America's political system. For information and action, go to publiccitizen at citizen.org, citizen.org. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So on Monday, Donald Trump was on Lou Dobbs' show, and uh, I... I got to be honest, I thought Lou Dobbs was gone. I had no idea uh, off into the sunset. Who knows? I had no idea where Lou Dobbs had ended up. Evidently, Mike Lindell has some kind of a, a platform that now Lou Dobbs is doing a show on. And wow, how far has Lou Dobbs fallen? Uh, but anyway, uh, Trump was on Lou Dobbs. And the interesting quote, uh, he says that we have an economy that's incredible. I agree. And and if I were a Republican, I would stop right there. But no, I have to read the rest of the sentence. He said, when there's a crash, uh, I hope it's going to be in the next 12 months uh, because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. And my thought was, one, yeah, the, the, the economy's doing pretty well. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite unhappy. I think we're moving in the right direction. But two, kind of too late on the Herbert Hoover thing, Don. Uh, do you not remember you leaving office with millions of people unemployed, an economy shut down, jobs being, do you, do you not remember? No, I'm sure you don't. Uh, anyway, here to share some thoughts on 
well, how the economy is doing, especially in the world of manufacturing. And that's why I've asked our good friend Scott Paul to come talk with us. Scott is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org, the website. Scott, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick, it's uh, great to be with you as always. So what do you think of uh, Trump not wanting to be Herbert Hoover? Yeah, well, for, first of all, let me just say, I don't think it's good form for anybody to root for a crash anytime. Uh, you know, and 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 particularly for the for the timing, um, that's that's terrible. Uh, you know, I I think that it's highly unlikely that um, we're going to have this uh, chaotic scenario with the economy um, that that Trump seems to think that he's going to inherit somehow. Um, you know, the fundamentals are are pretty good. I mean, it's really. It's really difficult to balance inflation, unemployment, all of that. And believe me, I'm, I'm not a fan of this fad, um, but they could have done a far worse job than they have right now. And there, there are some things to worry about, of course. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of things that could go wrong. Um, but if you look at the unemployment rate, it's low. If you look at some categories within the unemployment rate, like black unemployment, for instance, it's, it's almost historically low. Um, there is a factory construction boom underway. You know, there is some evidence, not enough yet, but there's some evidence that a bit of that supply chain uh, reallocation is taking place. Um, you know, if, if you care about the stock market, that's doing reasonably well these days. And fuel prices are gradually coming down. And we're also bringing new independent renewable sources online uh, every day. And so it's a, um, you know, given the circumstances, Rick, and where we came from just a very short time ago, uh, it's pretty remarkable. And just the last thing I will say about this is I'm willing to bet that of the, you know, nearly 200 countries around the world, that every one of them would want to have the American economy right now, because we're doing uh, far better, uh, either from an unemployment or an inflation perspective than just about anywhere else in the world. I know last time we had a conversation, it was about what's happening in China, uh, and, and that's looking downright scary. Uh, you, you know, a lot of different ways. So, so it's a uh, you know, the, the, this president uh, I think has done a, a a a pretty darn good job of getting us that um, soft landing, uh, which I don't know that we've ever achieved um, uh, with respect to inflation, unemployment, and kind of like a surge in um, you know in in the money supply because of uh because of, you know in order to recover from the pandemic getting cash in people's pockets it's been really hard yeah you know i was just you you said that the rest of the world is uh would, would be happy to have our economy in fact i was just uh reading a story about the world bank uh saying that the global economy is weak and and they see the uh, the outlook for the coming year as as well for the the 20s as a whole as as being bleak and here we are, you know, moving into the next, into 2024 and, and hopefully beyond uh, with some optimism. And for me, the optimism is, is that we're changing, you know, some of the, the, the bad policies of the past, reshoring manufacturing, investing in, in our infrastructure, uh, ensuring that the jobs that we do in those areas are good union jobs. Uh, the executive yeah. order that uh, just got finalized uh, with you know project labor agreements over 35 million bucks. I think those are good things, yeah. steps in the right direction. Yeah, they're not good things, they're great things. And I, I think it's, you know, that's been the challenge that we've had is that there ha it hasn't been that over the last couple of decades, there hasn't been wealth accumulated in the United States. There's been a massive amount of wealth accumulated in the United States. It's just mostly gone to big corporations and millionaires, and uh, it hasn't been evenly distributed. And so when you look at you know wage growth compared to uh, price inflation, for the most part, if you're an average worker, uh, you know, year over year, you, you've been left behind most years. Um, and, you know, we just had some high inflation that's come down. But but with those wage increases, we're now back in one of those periods 
where wage growth is better than price inflation. And so that means that's more money uh, for, for the average person that they're, they're feeling in their pocket, which is, uh, which is good and, and which is hard to achieve. And I'm just going to say, which if, if, if Trump were to enact his economic policies, and in particular, you know, the, the tax cuts for corporations and the very wealthy, that exacerbates the inequality and the challenge, and it certainly doesn't help it. Uh, and, and we saw that the first go-round. That, that having two doses of that uh, would not be a good thing. No, we, we've seen this. Stock. We've seen this film. It doesn't end well. It, it ended with, uh, with chaos. And I find it interesting that, you know, immediately Trump goes to the, oh, I, I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. I know he doesn't want to be, but you, you kind of are. Uh, you left office in disgrace, the, the only president in my lifetime to not had a net increase in jobs during your four years, uh, economic chaos, uh, and left left Biden with a massive economic mess to clean up, which they have done without complaint. I mean, that's the part that gets me. And this statement by by Trump is, again, more narcissism, more. It's more about him than it is about us, the working people of this country. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's both about his kind of governing philosophy and his cult of personality and all of that. And I look, I'm not going to delude myself into thinking this is going to be a data driven election that pe people are going to look at the at, at the numbers and say, you know, things are qualitatively and quantitatively better, uh, you know, now than they were before uh, i mean that's what the data shows certainly it, it shows that uh getting across that in terms of i think values and relating to people and continuing to lean in on the populism uh, are going to be very important uh for for biden uh to to do yeah. and, and and to show that we have made some progress there's a lot more to do um but that simply giving big tax breaks uh, to the wealthy, big tax breaks to corporations, uh, with respect to trade policy, to just saying, I want a 10% across the board tariff, rather than kind of articulating what your strategy is. Um, you know, these, these are, I, I think these are going to be important distinctions. And uh, my hope is that, you know, that, that Biden will continue to lean in on his uh, accomplishments for working people, because not only are they you know, perhaps helping him politically, but it, it's going to produce this transformational change in the economy and also in who's getting the benefits from growth in this country, where it had been overwhelmingly the top 1%, uh, much more evenly distributed now, which is a very, very good thing. And that comes back to policy choices uh, that are made by the administration, I believe on the direction that they're taking us. But again, I come back to those policy choices. And a moment ago, you talked about our supply chain and you know how we're moving in that direction. You know, the fact that, you know, manufacturing jobs, we had a, a good year uh, the year before last. Last year, not so much. Uh, yeah. Do you see that as as maybe getting back to something of of normal? How do you, how, how are you looking at this data? Uh, we had a huge year, one year last year, well, not so not so great. Uh, how, yeah. how are you reading that? Yeah. So I and I think that's important. That if if uh, you know Trump or Republicans try to demagogue this a little bit, it's important to know the facts. And it is true that in all of 2023, there were only 12,000 manufacturing jobs added in an economy that that in an economy that produced, I think, 2.3 or 2.4 million jobs uh, over that year. So that's a really really small level of output and a big decrease from 2022. But there are a lot of reasons for that. One is that the uh, goods frenzy, you know, the buying frenzy that everybody was on, you know, I'm getting this, I'm getting that, kind of dissipated uh, and people turned back to spending on vacations and services and other, you know, they went out again, right? And even hospitality and restaurants. And so that dollar was spent differently over the last year. I think it's also true that we still have a lot of folks in manufacturing who are older who are retiring, and it's been harder to get young people into it. I think that's gradually change, changing. I mean, I've heard so many stories now of steel mills hiring workers, kind of basically fresh out of high school or on a job, you know, shifting jobs, uh, you know, in their twenties or thirties, 
where they're going to earn 80,000 bucks and they got to do some training, but you're going to get a good union job with benefits. And so I think that's becoming more appealing, but we're not quite there yet. And then I do think, you know, what the Fed was doing with interest rates and raising them so much also dampened some of the economic growth and that had an impact on manufacturing jobs. Here's, you know, I do think that this year is going to look different. Um, and, and I'm hopeful it's going to look a lot better for manufacturing because there is a lot of construction in factory towns uh, of uh, new facilities going in to make semiconductors, to make um, uh, other products that might have been made overseas before, uh, and to make uh, clean energy uh, things like solar panels uh, and, and, and electric vehicles and, and batteries. And those those factories are all under construction now, and so they're construction jobs. Uh, you know, in a you know this starting this year, you know there'll be manufacturing jobs, and I think that that's gonna that's gonna change this equation a little bit too. That'd be interesting to see. Now, is that because of the Biden policies? Is that because companies are are looking at China with a jaundiced eye and maybe hedging their bets uh, and putting manufacturing elsewhere? Uh, you know, or is it you know all of the above? Yeah, I think it is all of the above. So I think the public investment certainly helps because we're making our economy more competitive. We're creating more markets here uh, than, than existed before. There wasn't a market really for clean energy manufacturing. Now there is. Um, and, and those semiconductor factories probably would not be coming here on their own because they're very capital intensive to start up and you do need some assistance. Um, but I, I do also think, and I know we've touched on this, that there is a, a change of thinking in some corporate boardrooms about mitigating risk. They're not all the way there, but I think some of them are at a tipping point where they don't want to run into the supply chain disruptions, and they are locating some production back here in the United States to hedge that geopolitical risk or, or some other you know black swan event. And so I do think that that is a factor as well. But I will say that the U.S. I think now is a very attractive place to put a factory in. Um, and, you know, unless you're solely competing on low, low wages, because we have high performing workers, we're going to have an energy advantage. We have the biggest consumer market in the world by spending power. And so there's a lot of reasons why you want to be here in the future. And there are more eyes every day that are opening up to that fact. But here's the thing, and I, and I think you wrote about this recently. Uh, this this does come back down to, to policymakers, though. This comes down to you know, the people in D.C. continuing these policies uh, where, you know, come November, if there's a, a sea change and we wipe out the investments, we we, we stop, you know, the, the, the infrastructure advancements, we cut out, we gut the, the green investments, you know, all that stuff. All that stuff comes to a screeching halt, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, you, you'll see a lot of things just mothballed, uh, and, and I'm I don't hesitate to make that prediction because I think some of them are predicated on having that um, having that that uh, that loan or that guarantee to start it up, you know, until they build the market and the revenue, because there is there is a high barrier to entry for a lot of these big factories in the United States and and that 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 chips act or that inflation reduction act or the infrastructure investment it's making a huge difference Rick. for and, and for, look you know the, the Biden administration's you know buy american policies uh, yeah. like, you know there's a lot That's of right. rhetoric around it but you know there's this administration's actually putting as i understand it and look you're the you're the expert here as i understand it they're actually putting some muscle behind it yeah, there's a much bigger market for public procurement for Made in America products than there used to be. And part of that is because of the volume, uh, you know, the size of the investment has increased. Part of that is because of the rules. More of the spending is subject to it. And so things like the broadband that's going, you know, some some aspects of the fiber optic cable or uh, other types of spending that were, that, that are that are being done. You know, the, those there's, there's Made in America requirements for those. So that's making a huge difference in creating that market here in the United States that just didn't exist before. Most certainly an important thing. And and look, you know, protecting our markets. And look, I'm I'm I've said all the time, I'm a protectionist. I'm not an isolationist. Uh, you know, when I leave my house, I lock the door. Uh, I don't dig a giant moat around it uh, so that yeah, I'm isolated from everybody. But I do I do lock the door when I leave. And I do think we need to protect U.S. industry, especially yeah. vital industries, uh, you know, especially productive vital industries. And I look at this story. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, this this tin plant in Wharton, uh, this Cleveland yeah. Cliffs tin plant. 
uh, that's saying, look, you know, we can't compete with uh, these foreign companies who are dumping uh, tin into this market, uh, cheap tin that we can't we can't compete with. Uh, they're asking the Biden administration to do something on it. Um, you know, what do we do in these these situations where you've got uh, both the Steelworkers Union and, mm -hmm. and a company like this going, hey, a little help, something, yeah. uh, maybe stop this kind of uh, mercantilist policy that uh, that's destroying good jobs and, and our manufacturing capa capacity? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a whole process set up for this for what are called anti-dumping countervailing duty cases where the, the company files them, they get adjudicated, they're, you know, there's supposed to be a, you know, very basic economic formula that's applied to it. Um, but this gets caught up in politics, of course. And so all the consumers of tin, think of all the companies that have tin cans, right? Uh, fought against this because this may raise their costs because they're not going to get below market kind of cheap prices for for the the inputs for the for the tin cans that they use and and they've been you know they they've been trying to wage a PR campaign saying that this is a terrible idea to put tariffs on this tin uh, but the fact is uh, and the finding was that it was dumped uh, it was coming from a lot of different places uh, and I, I'm just going to say this. Like, if we learned anything from the pandemic, you know, having a domestic supply of, of uh, shelf-stable goods and the ways to make that, probably pretty damn important. Uh, and so if we're depending on tin exclusively coming from overseas during the next crisis, whatever it is, we're, we're going to be completely hosed when it comes to that. And so part of this is about our security uh, as as well, and so my hope is that you know these these tariffs will go into effect, and that will provide some stability to the domestic industry, so that they can provide that tin for for the cans uh, for the products that people buy. But the, the 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 demagoguery about this has been just off the charts um, about from from the uh, the brands that, uh, that that buy the tin. They're just apoplectic that they'd actually have to pay a market price for it, Rick. What do you say to the person, Scott, who goes, well, you know, you know, if if we can get it cheaper, cheapest price, it's capitalism after all, Scott, uh, you know, the, the lowest bidder gets gets the contract. Uh, you know, what's wrong with 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 uh, a country like, like China or South Korea subsidizing their tin industry and consumers benefiting? Cheap is great until you find you yourself don't have a job because that mill closed down uh, down the street and you depended on those paychecks for whatever business you own. Cheap is great until you can't get that product because it's not made here anymore. There's no way to get it here because the ship's stuck somewhere uh, or is diverted to another market. So there is a trade-off yeah. here, and 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 the issue is. That our you know our companies you know have to play by these market rules and others others don't necessarily have to and so that's why you have these trade laws and the tariffs to balance it out. Yeah, and it's also great you know until when your company goes out of business and then they triple the costs uh, because yeah. you don't yeah, have the ability right. to to produce it, uh, which yeah, again that, is the reason that I'm a firm believer and we we talk about this all the time. I'm a firm believer in domestic production for domestic consumption. You can make a tin can here, Scott. We should do it. Yeah, I hear you there. And you made a great point is that, you know, they love to knock their competitors out of the market. And then once they've cornered the market, they'll raise the price. So it's a, you know, the trade laws should work. They shouldn't be politicized. Um, and I hope that in this case and in others uh, that they're, you know, adjudicated fairly and we provide some stability because history has shown that you can, stabilize the market if you have that right foundation in place and so that's that's the important message good stuff story. scott appreciate the time as always great stuff my friend thank you rick thanks so much for having me on appreciate it as always our good friend scott paul president of the alliance of american for american manufacturing americanmanufacturing.org the website make sure you check out their website we'll get links out on social media quick break right back to wrap things up stick around Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1885. That was the day that Toynbee Hall, the first university settlement house, 
opened its doors to the poor and working class communities of East London. The Industrial Revolution had created a new set of social conditions, those of high unemployment and slum housing, crime and infant mortality. The Vicar of St. Jude's, Canon Samuel Barnett, and his wife Henrietta hoped to combat poverty by having students settle in with the poor and working class to provide services and fight for social reforms. They named the settlement house in honor of their friend, economist and labor leader, Arnold Toynbee, who helped to organize trade unions and establish public libraries throughout East London. In its early days, Toynbee Hall championed the rights of minority immigrants, including Jews and the Irish, developed adult education and language courses, evaluated industrial working conditions, and provided free legal advice. More aligned with liberal rather than labor politics in Britain, reformers at Toynbee Hall looked to build the health of the nation by fighting for welfare reform legislation. It became a public forum for political debates and historical societies and blazed the path for the rise of the settlement house movement in Britain and the United States. Three years after its opening, Jane Addams would open Chicago's famed Hull House. Other settlement houses, like the Henry Street Settlement in New York City, founded by Lillian Wald, would soon follow. Though bombed in the Nazi Blitzkrieg in 1940, Toynbee Hall continues its vision of a future free from poverty and its mission to support people and communities to break down the barriers that trap them in poverty in a bold, engaged, and open environment to this day. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Back to the Rick Smith Show. Check out our website, thericksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something on your mind? Email me, Rick at thericksmithshow.com. So, look, you know, you know, as we were talking about, you know, this this idea of domestic production for domestic consumption is is for me a central a central issue, and it always has been. It's been one of those things that I've talked about for years, and I think is 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 policy wise incredibly important for the sole purpose of look. Once you lose productive capacity, once you can, and we learned this during the pandemic, once you don't, once you can't get it, once you don't have it, once you can't ramp up production, uh, the prices seem to go up. Think N95 masks. Couldn't get those. We could KN95s, cheap Chinese knockoffs, but couldn't get the N95 masks. Think about all the things that we couldn't get and we couldn't ramp up production because there was no factory here. This is the lesson we should have learned out of the pandemic. Now, I fear we've learned a lot of the wrong lessons. I hear a lot of my red hat friends whining, oh, they maybe got a vaccine. Yeah, and, and just, just crazy nonsense without learning the real, the real lessons in this. You know, I'm a, I'm a supporter of border controls on, on a lot of things. Uh, goods, services, money. Uh, we should be talking about that as well. But we're not because the moneyed interests don't want that. The moneyed interests, well, that doesn't help them. They want to make sure that, well, profitability is is what it is. But I go back to the quote I started off with Scott Paul, you know, with Donald Trump saying that uh, he doesn't want to be uh, Herbert Hoover. And as I've said, too late. Uh, you lost millions of jobs at the end of your term. Uh, yes, there was a pandemic, but you screwed it up. Uh, you were the guy in charge. You, The buck stopped with you. And Biden cleaned up the mess. I go back and I think about what would have happened had, had Trump been president during those initial days and what kind of chaos uh, this reopening would have been and what kind of grift you know there's a lot of money that went into the hands of our billionaire friends that shouldn't have been and speaking of the pandemic you know i've got a lot of friends who think it's all over they don't, they don't even talk about it anymore interestingly enough uh, we are seeing the largest wave of covid uh, sweeping across the country uh, led by this this new variant the jn uh, one variant uh, which is, they're saying, highly transmissible. 
and is showing up in people who have been vaccinated and people who have been infected. Uh, that would be me. <laughs> um, people, some, I, was, I got vaccinated twice. I got the vaccine and the booster, and I had it. And I had it bad. Uh, now they're saying, uh, you know, the wastewater detection levels indicate that this could be the largest wave since Omicron in 21, with about 2 million Americans infected every day. Now, understand, I don't count in those numbers because I didn't take an official test with the government. I took a bunch of those home tests that all said, yeah, you're positive. Yeah, you're positive. I didn't go to the doctor and get drugs. Uh, now, what the reports are saying, despite the number of cases that are going through the roof, despite all that happening, um, the COVID-related hospitalizations and deaths down from last year. That tells me, that tells me we're getting past it. That tells me maybe, maybe this is, maybe we're going to be okay. I know, I know some people are going to be yelling at me, but I'll tell you, this time when I got it, it, it was nothing like the first time. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Make sure you grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.